Hi, I'm Robert Jeffress, and I'm glad to serve as your Bible teacher every day on this great radio station on today's edition of Pathway to Victory. Unlike the first resurrection that takes place over a period of time, the second resurrection of the unsaved occurs all at the same point. It happens after the thousand-year reign of Christ. And the purpose of the second resurrection is to raise the bodies of all unbelievers so they can experience the final judgment we're talking about today, the great white throne judgment. Welcome to Pathway to Victory with author and pastor, Dr. Robert Jeffress. People really enjoy hearing stories about God's love and forgiveness, but we can't fully appreciate God's mercy until we fully revere His holiness. Today on Pathway to Victory, Dr. Robert Jeffress warns that while God will forgive those who ask for it, He will also judge those who reject His gift of salvation. Now, here's our Bible teacher to introduce today's message. Dr. Jeffress? Thanks, David, and welcome again to Pathway to Victory. In just a few more days from now, we'll conclude our highly popular series on Bible prophecy called Perfect Ending. And since that moment is right around the corner, time is running short to receive the helpful resources we've prepared for you. First, I'm pleased to offer you a copy of my book that complements the study. It, too, is called Perfect Ending. If you sometimes feel confused about God's timeline for the future, you're not alone. In fact, most Christians find this topic somewhat baffling, and admittedly, many fail to see the connection between ancient predictions and life in 2023. Well, my book will help you connect the dots. The full title of the book is Perfect Ending, Why Your Eternal Future Matters Today. And when you give a generous gift to support the ministry of Pathway to Victory, I'll make sure to send a copy to your home. Plus, when you respond today, I'll also include the popular End Times Illustrated book I created as well. This resource is simple to understand because I provided charts and full-color infographics that describe key biblical events— like the rapture, the millennium, and the second coming of Christ, and how they fall into God's plan for the future. I'll say more about these resources after today's message. In fact, we've set aside some other materials you'll want to request as well. But right now, please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20 as we begin today's study. We're going to look at one of the most sobering passages in the Bible describing the future judgment of all unbelievers. I've titled today's study, Final Judgment. Warren Wiersbe tells the story about a frontier town in which a wagon being pulled along by a horse suddenly bolted away as the horse began to run, carrying the wagon that in turn had a small boy in it. A young man, seeing the danger the young child was in, suddenly got on a horse and put his own life at risk to rescue the little boy. That little boy grew up to be a ruthless criminal. And one day he found himself standing before a judge, awaiting being sentenced for a murder he had committed. And as the young criminal looked up at the judge, he recognized the judge as the man who had saved his life many years earlier. And so he made a plea for mercy to the judge based on what the judge had done for him many years earlier. But the judge silenced the plea of mercy with these words. 
He looked at the young criminal and he said, son, many years ago, I was your savior, but today I am your judge. And therefore I sentence you to be hanged. More than 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came to be our Savior. He lived a humiliating life. He died an excruciating death in order to provide for us the forgiveness of our sins. But the Bible says one day Jesus Christ is coming back to earth, not as the Savior of the world, but as the judge of the world. And it's that second coming of Christ when he comes to judge all unbelievers that we're going to look at today. It is a judgment that takes place at an event we often call the great white throne judgment. You see, the Bible says when we as Christians die, our spirit goes to heaven, our bodies are left behind in the grave. When the non-Christian dies, his spirit goes to Hades, his body is left behind in the grave. But both the bodies of Christians and non-Christians will be raised at some future time. The body of Christians will be raised so that we can experience everlasting blessing. The body of non-Christians will be resurrected so that they can experience everlasting judgment. These are the two resurrections. The first resurrection is for eternal life. The second resurrection is for eternal death. And that's why John says, blessed is he who has a part in the first resurrection because over him, the second death has no power. Now let's look at each of these resurrections in more detail. The first resurrection is called very creatively, the first resurrection. That makes sense, doesn't it? The first resurrection is the first resurrection. It is the resurrection of all Christians. But here's the concept you need to understand. The first resurrection doesn't happen all at the same time. The first resurrection happens at four different times in history. That is, every Christian goes immediately into the presence of Christ when he dies, but his body is raised at a particular time in history, and it's not the same for all believers. The best way to understand that is through a concept you moms understand or remember, and it's the concept of a carpool. You know what a carpool is. You know, you arrange with other parents, if you're the designated carpool driver, that you go around and pick up the little urchins at different houses, and you know, your car, the population gets bigger and bigger and bigger at each pickup point until you deposit all of them at one location, the soccer field or school. That is a carpool. I want you to think of the first resurrection as a heavenly carpool, okay? Different Christians are picked up at different points in history. That is, their bodies are raised up and changed into the resurrection body. Where do we find that? Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in the first 19 verses, Paul explains the truth of Christ's resurrection. Look at 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who are asleep. Now that verse is meaningless to most of us because we don't have a Jewish background. We don't understand what the term first fruits means. But in the Israeli culture, in the Old Testament, remember it was an agricultural community, when they would harvest crops, when the time of the harvest came, before farmers would harvest the entire crop, they would harvest 
a sampling of it, and they would bring that sample to the priest and offer it as an offering. It was called the offering of the first fruits, Leviticus 23.10. Now, this sample harvest wasn't all the harvest. It was just a sample of a greater harvest that was yet to come. And what Paul is saying is, as magnificent as the resurrection of Jesus Christ was, it's not the whole story. Jesus Christ was just the first of many who would be raised from the dead. He was the first fruits. He was the sample of a greater resurrection yet to come. Look at verses 22 and 23 of 1 Corinthians 15. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. It's not just Christ who was raised from the dead, but every follower of Christ will also be raised from the dead. Verse 23, but each in his own order. Translation, but everybody has to wait their turn. Unlike the first resurrection that takes place over a period of time, the second resurrection of the unsaved occurs all at the same point. It happens after the thousand-year reign of Christ. And the purpose of the second resurrection is to raise the bodies of all unbelievers so they can experience the final judgment we're talking about today, the great white throne judgment. Turn over to Revelation chapter 20, beginning with verse 11. There are some people who believe, some Christians, that there's only one judgment at the end of time, one judgment for both believers and unbelievers. But the Bible does not teach that. There's a judgment for Christians. It's the judgment called the judgment seat of Christ. But there's another judgment for unbelievers that we're looking at today, the great white throne judgment. Look at the description of that judgment in verse 11. John says, and I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. As John looked, he saw a single solitary throne suspended in space. Heaven and earth were gone at this point. What happened to the heaven and earth? See that white space in your Bible between verse 10 and 11? See a little white space there? In that white space, this earth and this heaven were destroyed by fire. Just as 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 state, that one day this present heaven and earth being reserved for judgment will be destroyed by fire. And when we get to the Satan's judgment in verse 10 and then to verse 11, the judgment of all unbelievers in between those two verses, the present heaven and earth fled away. That is, they were destroyed. And so John only sees someone sitting on this great white throne. Now notice, this is completely different from the picture in Revelation 4, verse 2, where at the beginning of the tribulation, John looked into heaven and he saw God the Father on a throne surrounded by the 24 elders, the church, and he saw the rainbow surrounding the throne and peals of lightning and, and, and the sounds of thunder. That's not this picture. This picture is of, of a single solitary throne and it has a different occupant on it. The occupant is not God the Father. It is Jesus Christ, the Son. Who is it that is going to be judged by Jesus the Son? Notice the subjects of the great white throne judgment in verses 12 and 13. John says, and I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. 
Skip down to verse 13. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Remember when an unbeliever dies, no matter when it happens, his body goes into the grave, but his spirit, the real part of him, goes to this place called Hades. It's a temporary waiting place for the unsaved, but it is a horrible place. Jesus talked about it in Luke 16 in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember, the rich man opened his eyes and he found himself in this horrible place called Hades. The Bible says Hades is the place where all unbelievers are deposited until the final judgment. And at the great white throne judgment, John says in verse 13, Hades regurgitated all of the unsaved dead from the beginning of time to stand before this great white throne in judgment. The subjects of the great white throne judgment are unbelievers. And how are they judged? What is the basis for their judgment? Go back to verses 12 and 13. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books, underline that, were opened. And another book, singular, underline that, was opened. What is that book? It is the book of life. But the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books, plural, not the book, the book of life. They were judged by the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death in Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds, their works. Did you know God keeps two sets of books on all of us? There is the book, and there are the books. The book is what the Bible calls the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 13, verse 8. It is a book that is a record of everyone who is saved, of everyone who has trusted in Christ as his Savior. And you know what Revelation 13, 8 says? It says that book was written before the foundation of the world. Every name was entered into it before the foundation of the world. You probably thought, like I used to hear people say, well, when somebody walks down the aisle and trusts in Christ as Savior, God pulls out his pen and writes his name in the book of life. Doesn't happen that way. Well, we say, well, how did God do that? Did he write people's names? On what basis were those names written? Did God write down the names of people he knew would trust in Christ as Savior if given the opportunity? Or did he write down the names that he predetermined would accept Christ? The answer is the subject of another sermon at some point. <laughs> How's that for a cop-out? But the fact is, that book has been composed. Every name in it is a record of everyone who's ever been saved or will be saved. And unless your name is written in that Lamb's book of life, you will not escape the great white throne judgment. There is the book, but then there are the books. That is, God keeps a record of every person's, believer and unbeliever's, works. Every word, every action, every thought is recorded according to the things that are written in the books. Everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly, is recorded in the books. No good deed goes unrecorded. No sin goes unnoticed. It is all in the books. The Bible says that the unsaved are judged according to the books according to their deeds, according to the things that have been written in this book. 
The Bible says in verse 12, if any man's name is not found written in the book of life, he was judged forever and ever. The unbeliever, listen to this, is the person who chooses to be judged not by having his name in the book, but according to his works in the books. You know, one of the saddest aspects to me of this judgment, the white throne judgment, is the confidence with which unbelievers will approach it. After the unbeliever gets over the initial shock of seeing the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he rejected, sitting on that great white throne, after that initial shock, the unbeliever will actually start to feel pretty confident as he hears Jesus announce the basis on which he's going to be judged. As Jesus begins to open the books and says, I will judge you as you've chosen to be judged according to your deeds, according to your works. But that optimism, that confidence will turn to despair very, very quickly as the unbeliever realizes that the basis, the standard by which his works will be judged will not be his relative righteousness to other people, but by the perfection of God's own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the standard by which our righteousness will be judged, and by that standard, everyone falls short. What happens as a result of the white throne judgment? Look at verses 14 and 15. And death and Hades, that is unbelievers, were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if any man's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You say, Pastor, I just can't put my mind around that. I cannot understand how a good and a loving God would choose to punish people, to torture people forever and ever and ever. May I remind you, there will not be one occupant in the lake of fire who is not there by his own choice. The unbeliever is the person who has said to God, whatever Jesus Christ did means nothing to me. I don't need his death. I don't need his righteousness. I'm happy to be judged by you according to my own merits. And God says, fine, I'll give you exactly what you wish. We'll judge you according to your works. But nobody's works will be good enough. For you see, the Bible says, unless we have a righteousness that equals that of Jesus Christ himself, none of us is qualified to enter into heaven. You say, well, that's impossible. Nobody could ever meet that standard. The perfection of Jesus Christ, nobody could ever meet that standard. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why the only way we'll ever be qualified to enter into heaven is not on the basis of our goodness, but on the basis of the goodness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I know I've said this before, but I think right now is a helpful time to illustrate exactly what that means, the righteousness of Jesus Christ and what it means to put that on. I want you to imagine here two books. One book is titled The Life and Times of Jesus Christ. This is a book that records every good deed, every perfect thing that Jesus Christ has ever done, his complete record of absolute righteousness. The Life and Times of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to imagine another book titled The Life and Times of Robert Jeffers. It is a book that records some of the good things I've done. 
but it also describes every wrong action, every wrong thought, every wrong motivation for doing anything I've ever had. This book reads like a supermarket tabloid. It's a book I hope nobody will purchase. Two books, The Life and Times of Jesus Christ, The Life and Times of Robert Jeffers. Now, what happens when I trust in Christ as my Savior? You know what God does? He takes the cover of this book and he places it on this book containing Jesus' good deeds. And so when God looks at the life and times of Robert Jeffers, he no longer sees my sin. He sees all of the good things that Jesus did. And he gives me credit for his righteous life. But there's something else that happens. When I trust in Christ as my Savior, God takes the cover of this book, The Life and Times of Jesus, and he places it around my life story. 2,000 years ago, when God looked down on Jesus on the cross, he saw my sin. He saw your sin. And he judged Jesus for what we have done. It's the greatest exchange that has ever taken place when we become a Christian I take my sinfulness and my righteousness and give it to Jesus Christ to suffer for. And he takes his righteousness and he credits it to my account so that I spend eternity benefiting from the perfect life of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The most important choice you ever make in life is this. What am I depending upon to get me into heaven one day? Am I going to depend upon my righteousness? Am I going to depend on that? Or am I going to choose to depend upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the perfect life he led? You see, it's one or the other. Either you're depending on your righteousness or you're depending completely on the righteousness of Christ. It's one or the other. It can't be both. And ladies and gentlemen, that choice of what you're depending on to get into heaven is a choice you have to make right now in this life. If you wait until you die to make that choice, you've waited too long. If you wait until you die to call on the name of Christ for salvation, there is no salvation. If you find yourself standing before that great white throne judgment, it's too late. You must choose the righteousness of Christ now to escape that final white throne judgment. God has given us clear details about these future events, not simply to satisfy our curiosity, but to impact the choices we make every single day. And while there's still time, let me urge you to get in touch with Pathway to Victory to request the helpful book I've written for you. It's entitled, Perfect Ending, Why Your Eternal Future Matters Today. Bible prophecy doesn't need to be complicated or confusing, but it does need to be studied and understood. And my book is designed to help you grasp the key elements so that you're filled with joy and anticipation as you look forward to the Lord's return. A copy of Perfect Ending is yours when you give a generous gift to support the ministry of Pathway to Victory. Plus, when you give to Pathway to Victory, you're accomplishing far more than covering the cost of my book. Whatever generous amount you choose to give, 
above and beyond the cost of the book, allows us to provide this program on your station and hundreds and hundreds of other stations around the country. And when you give generously, you'll enjoy the satisfaction of knowing that God is using your faithful giving to truly make a difference in pushing back the darkness in our culture. In recent days, thousands of friends have stepped forward to give, and we're absolutely thrilled. I believe these new friends have the same conviction that I do, that Jesus really is coming back one day soon. And God has given us the responsibility of sharing this message with as many people as possible before it's too late. Thank you so much for partnering with me in this ministry as together we pierce the darkness with the light of God's Word. David? Thanks, Dr. Jeffress. Today, when you give a very generous gift of Pathway to Victory, you're invited to request a copy of the book Perfect Ending by Dr. Robert Jeffress. As an added bonus, you'll also receive the highly requested companion guide, The End Times Illustrated. Call us toll-free at 866-999-2965, or it's even easier to make your request online at ptv.org. And when your gift is $75 or more, we'll also send you, in addition to the book and companion guide, all the messages from this month's Perfect Ending series on both CD and DVD. Again, call 866-999-2965 or go to ptv.org. If you'd prefer to write, jot down this mailing address, P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. Again, that's P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas, 75222. I'm David J. Mullins, inviting you to join us again tomorrow for the next part in our series on the end times. Hear a message called Rewards in Heaven, Wednesday on Pathway to Victory. Pathway to Victory with Dr. Robert Jeffress comes from the pulpit of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas.